Well, good morning. It's good to be together this morning and uh, have the opportunity to sing together and study God's Word. Um, just a quick reminder, I, I try to say this every, every few months, um, but just a reminder on um, why we do what we do and preach God's Word the way that we do. Um, if we believe that God has, the Creator God of the universe has revealed himself to us and spoken to us, and we have his words and his revelation of himself to us in this book, and we do believe that, that this is the inspired word of God, then we want to know what the creator God has said to us and who he is and how he has revealed himself to us. And we believe that he has spoken clearly and accurately without error in this book. And so every week we want to come here and we want to open this book and we want to, verse by verse, section by section, in context, as clear and as best as we can, understand what the Creator God has said to us. And so that's why we go book by book and section by section through God's Word, because we want Him to speak to us through the Spirit and through His Word and reveal Himself to us week in and week out. So we call that expository preaching, and if what I've just described to you is true of God, then this is the primary way that we need to come to the Scriptures. And so um, that's what we do here. It's as simple as I, can, as, as I can explain it and understand it. That's what we try to do week in and week out. And so I'm glad you're here with us to open God's Word together. Every Sunday is another uh, step in this process of conforming us to the image of Christ and honoring him as we try to understand his word. So John 14 is where we'll be this morning. Winston Churchill died on January 24th, 1965, which to me doesn't sound all that long ago. He died at 90 years of age. You may not know this, but his funeral was the last state funeral in Britain until this September, when Queen Elizabeth II had a state funeral after her passing. When Churchill died in 1965, Queen Elizabeth, who just passed away a couple of months ago, a month and a half ago, sent a letter to his wife and said this about his passing. The whole world is the poorer by the loss of his many-sided genius. While the survival of this country and the sister nations of the Commonwealth in the face of the greatest danger that has ever threatened them will be a perpetual memorial to his leadership, his vision, and indomitable courage. It's quite a, quite a thing to say about someone. And when someone with that level of leadership and influence dies, I think there's always a sense of, what will we do now? Where will we look for leadership and for guidance and for direction? So think about that with Churchill. And now, put yourself in the shoes of the 12 disciples of Jesus. They have listened to his teaching for several years. They have watched him not just lead, not just give wonderful speeches, but they have watched him perform miracles. They have listened to him claim to be the Son of God. They have 
been with him every step of the way throughout his ministry, and now on his last night with them, it's becoming clearer and clearer to them as he talks that he's going away, that this is it, that he's not going to be with them. And not only is he departing from them, but he's leaving them an incredible amount of responsibility as he leaves. They're going to be the ones that are carrying on his ministry, essentially, in his absence. It's like being told that not only has Winston Churchill died in the middle of World War II, but here you go, you're prime minister. You've got to get us out of this jam. You've got to continue on his work. That's a little bit like what the disciples are probably feeling in this moment in the upper room. Listen to what he says to them in verse 12. Let me remind you of this. Chapter 14 and verse 12. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. That's quite a bit of responsibility there. Then he goes on in verse 15 to tell them this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What commandments? That's quite the responsibility as well, to continue to live after he's departed and to obey him and to keep his commandments. Well, it's certainly what he's just mentioned in verse 12, right? Doing the greater works than he will do after his departure. But you've got to expand this out to include the rest of his teaching, to include things like the Sermon on the Mount, to include the command of chapter 13 and verse 34, where he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. He's, he gives them that command that they're now responsible to obey. He tells them to take up their cross and follow him. But this isn't just a list of commands that Jesus is giving them and saying, okay, if you really love me, you'll check off this list and you'll keep all of these commands. Included in the commandments that he gives them is also the teaching that he gives them about himself. And what has he revealed about himself to them? That he is the king. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the son of God who is in fellowship with the father. And so their lives have to obey his commands and teaching, but they also have to reflect the reality that he is the Lord of the universe and he is the Son of God. Their way of life has to match that proclamation and that statement that Jesus is Lord. And so he says here, if you are truly devoted to me, if you love me, that love will result in you living in a way that showcases that I am Lord. That's what he's saying to them in verse 15. And that seems like quite the tall order, right? That's pretty intimidating, a pretty intimidating thing for him to, to tell them. And he knows that after he goes away that they're going to need help in this. They are not up to the task and not capable of doing this on their own, obviously. And so that's where his grace and his kindness come in. And he's going to provide significant help for them, even as they're imperfect, even as they're going to struggle, even as they're going to deny him and not live up to the standard that he's set for them. He's going to graciously and continually provide help for them with this responsibility 
in front of them. And this help that he's going to provide for them is not just for them. It's for you and it's for me as well. As we continue to take up our cross and follow him and read his commandments and read about who he is as Lord here and our lives try to match up to that and we seek to obey what he's given to us. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Hopefully an encouraging passage to you, verses 15 to 31, four ways that Jesus enables the obedience of his disciples after his departure. He certainly does not leave them without guidance and without significant help. The first one of these ways that Jesus enables their obedience, you can see it on the screen there, is the persistent presence of the Spirit. The persistent presence of the Spirit. In order for the disciples to receive the power that they need to follow the course that he has set for them in verse 15, Jesus is actually going to ask God to give them help. Look at verse 16. And I will ask the Father. Right? Right on the heels of saying, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Now he's saying, and look, I'm going to ask the Father, and look at the rest of this, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. First thing to notice about this is obviously what I've just said, that it is a gift from the Father and the Son. Jesus asks God the Father to provide this help to them. It's not something that's earned. It's not something where if you do keep his commandments, then you get this little bit of extra help. This is graciously given to them and to us to enable us to walk according to love for Christ and according to his commandments. Notice also that Jesus calls this gift another helper. I think sometimes we forget that word another here before we get to the explanation of this word helper. It's another helper. So think of Jesus as the first helper. He's the one who has come to the disciples and taught them and enabled them and helped them during his earthly ministry, given them guidance, and now they're going to receive a second or another helper. And this one will be of the same kind as the first one. It will help them significantly. Now, I've used that word help a lot, and we need to talk about this word here. If you have an ESV Bible, it's translated helper, but there's probably a number next to it. It's the number eight in my Bible. And if you look down, there's probably a number of different words that are used and given to you as options for how you translate this word. Maybe yours, your translation says counselor. Maybe yours says advocate. Yours may say comforter. There's a reason that there are so many different words. I think almost all the translations use a different word for this. The reason for that is there's not really a good English equivalent for this word. And each of the options that I've just given you kind of gets at a part of who this will be and what sort of a, a person this will be to help them and to come alongside them. But none of the options really get at the whole. And each of them has a little bit of a significant downfall where you can misunderstand what sort of aid this is going to be for them. The Greek word is paraclete, which I'm sure if you've been around the church some, you have heard that word before. 
So let's talk about the different options real quickly so we can get a better understanding of what sort of aid is going to be coming to them. Helper is not quite right because it makes it sound like we're in charge and we're running the show and this person is going to come along to sort of help us in the relationship. Comforter is helpful to a certain extent, but that sounds a little bit like you're giving a pacifier to a baby, just coming along to sort of soothe and comfort, and that is a bit of the role of this one, but, but not the totality of it. Advocate is helpful in some ways, but when you think of an advocate, you may think of a, a court of law where a lawyer advocates for a client, and that's not exactly right because this goes beyond that and includes some of these other options of comfort and help and aid coming alongside. So what exactly are the disciples receiving here in this helper or comforter or advocate? This commentator said this regarding the role of this one. Thus, the picture presented in this context is that of a paraclete, that's the Greek word, who will function as a replacement and a strengthening companion who will be a kind of alter ego for Jesus. Jesus had been leading them, advising them, teaching them, empowering them, and critiquing them. And so it's like this one, this paraclete, is coming alongside, and it's a combination of all of these different words. There's a sense in which a helper is right and comfort is right and an advocate is, is right here. And the thing about this aid to them, this paraclete, is this, this will be a permanent fixture in their lives. Look at the end of verse 16. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper or comforter or advocate to be with you forever. This is not something temporary. This is a permanent fixture in the life of of a disciple of Jesus. So who will this be? Look at verse 17. Even the Spirit, capital S, of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice he says it's the spirit of truth. Jesus has just called himself in John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life. And so here he's talking about the Holy Spirit who will be the one whose role is to point to him and to testify to him. Now notice again what he says at the end of verse 17. You know him. How do they know him? Well, first of all, because he dwells with you. What does that mean? Jesus says the Spirit has already been dwelling with you. How so? Remember, Jesus has been indwelt by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit in his ministry. This happened at his baptism, confirmed in his temptation. The Spirit led him. And so the disciples have been operating in the presence of the Spirit as the Spirit indwelt and empowered and worked in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they're familiar with what happens to some extent when the Spirit indwells someone. But then notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 17. It's going to move beyond just knowing about him and knowing how he works. Because it's going to move beyond that to be now in your life. You know him for he dwells with you, but he's not just going to dwell with you now. He will be in you. This is going to take place now, just as Jesus has promised 
already in the Gospel of John. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not glorified. But the Spirit is going to be given to indwell them and empower them. Now we're going to learn a lot more about the Holy Spirit over the next few chapters. But let me just make it clear who it is that we're talking about this morning. I love the chorus. I love the whole song, King of Kings. But I love the chorus of that song. And don't skip too quickly over it. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit. Three in one. This is a core tenet of our faith as Christians. That the Holy Spirit is God. God is triune. The Spirit is a member of the Trinity. He is a person. And his role is to make real in our experience the relationship that we now have with the Father and the Son. Okay, This is always the Spirit's role within the Trinity. He's like the communication piece between the Father and the Son. You see this at Jesus' baptism. The Father initiates and proclaims his love for the Son. How does he do that? Through the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who makes the experience of God's love and the relationship, the love of the Father for the Son, real between them and between us. I'm going to give you a long quote here to explain a little bit clearer the work of the Spirit. Don't be scared by the three dots at the end. This quote will end eventually. (laughs) What the gospel promises, listen to this, the Holy Spirit actualizes life, love, and hope. The work of the Holy Spirit is a significant feature of Trinitarian theology because the Holy Spirit is the workhorse of the Trinity. He is the love between Father and Son. He is the grace between Christ and the believer. He is the power of God's presence and the presence of God's power in both creation and redemption. The Holy Spirit, I don't know where I'm at here, The Holy Spirit turns theology into experience by drawing us into the life of God. The Holy Spirit is the deposit of our hope known in the present and the actualizer of that hope to be realized in the future. If there were no Holy Spirit, there would be nothing to bind us to Christ and to apply His redemptive work to us. There would be no revelation and no way to comprehend it. The Holy Spirit explains how the invisible God works in his creation without becoming confused with it. I love the way Paul puts this, and I think it's a great summary of this quote that I've just given you in Romans 5.5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Right? That's what he does, is he actualizes and makes real our experience and our recognition of God's love for us, because that's what he's always done within the members of the Trinity. The Spirit pulls us into that relationship. He makes clear that God loves us, and he encourages our love for God. That's his work. And when you are consistently aware of the love of God for you and encouraged by his love for you and you recognize it and you see it in your daily life, that's how you obey him. 
That's what it takes. It's not by trying harder in all of these different ways. It's by going back to the love that God has for you, which is made clear through the Spirit. And that's why the gift of the Spirit is so powerful to enable our obedience and to enable a way of life that is appropriate to the gospel message. But that's not the only gift, the only way that Jesus enables our obedience. We'll return to the Spirit in a little while here, but Jesus moves on to another way that he enables our obedience in verses 18 through 24. We have the persistent presence of the Spirit, and now we have the encouraging reality of resurrection life. So I want you to keep in mind here the context of Jesus' departure, right? He's leaving them. He's going away from them. With that in mind, which is the whole context of this section, look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. An orphan is one who is deprived of the help, the leadership, the instruction, and the provision of his or her parents. That's what an orphan is. They live without that aid and without that help. And Jesus here promises not to deprive his disciples of that family relationship with him. Continue in verse 19. Yet, a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. So what's he talking about here? How is he going to not leave them as orphans and how is he going to come to them? What he's talking about here is his resurrection and his appearances to the disciples post-resurrection. So he's saying, I'm going to go away, but you're going to see me and the world's not going to see me. I'm going to come back to you. You're going to read about these appearances in the, at the end of the Gospel of John, chapters 20 and 21. But we know he's referring to his resurrection because of the end of verse 19. Because I live, you also will live. And so when Jesus shows back up after his death, wins the victory over death and over sin and rises from the dead, that resurrection now guarantees, according to verse 19, that they are also going to have resurrection life. It's the guarantee of that. Paul fleshes this out in Romans 6.4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And Paul says the reality of Christ's resurrection and the fact that we will live too because of his resurrection is something that can be experienced in this life now walking in newly empowered resurrection life. That's something that you can live in this week. Look at verse 20. In that day, what day? The day that Christ rises from the dead and the disciples know that because of his resurrection, they will live in new life as well. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. What's going on here? To live in resurrection life, to live empowered by new life means 
to live in light of the fact that because Jesus lives, now you and I have been invited into that relationship, the love between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. That's the reality that we now live in according to verse 20. That means that you and I now have full and complete access to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. It means the Spirit prays for us even when we don't know what we should pray for because of the family relationship. Romans chapter 8, the Spirit intercedes and prays for us. It means that as the Spirit works in us, we produce fruit that reflects Christ and puts His character on display. All of that happens because now we have new life, resurrection life. We live in a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And all of that becomes clear after Jesus rises from the dead. The disciples now know that. And that's why verse 20 says, in that day. You've seen already in the Gospel of John multiple times where it talks about the disciples not understanding something, and then after Jesus rises from the dead, it becomes clear to them. That's what he's describing here. The type of life that you will now live, walking in newness of life, is going to be crystal clear to you after, he, after I rise from the dead, is what he's saying. And that resurrection life looks like walking in obedience to Jesus's commands. As you are in relationship with the Father and the Son through the Spirit, and you love Him because He first loved you, now you walk in obedience to His commands. Look at verse 21. This is what resurrection life looks like. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see the closeness of relationship there and the manifesting. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He's describing here walking in newness of resurrection life in obedience to his commands empowered by the Spirit. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I think this way of life that I'm describing as resurrection life here, this way of living that is empowered by the Spirit and walks in fellowship with the Father and the Son I think this is exactly what Paul's getting at again in Philippians chapter 3. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. There's a significant change that happens in the life of a believer because of the resurrection. I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so this is a new way of life that lives in love and obedience to Christ because of the work of the Spirit. This is what we have as followers and believers in Christ. And this resurrection life to return back to the Spirit is now built up and encouraged by the ongoing teaching and instruction of the Spirit. And this is the third way that Jesus enables the obedience of his disciples. 
So we have the presence of the Spirit. We have the reality of new life because Christ has risen from the dead and that new life expresses itself in obedience to him and relationship with him. And now, to help all of that take place, the Spirit instructs us and teaches us. Look at verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But, verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, the disciples had received a lot of instruction over the course of these three, three and a half years that they'd been with Jesus. Surely they didn't remember every last sentence that Jesus had said. But here he says the Spirit is going to continue to teach you based on what I've already said, and he's going to remember, bring to your remembrance what I've already said. In one sense, I think this is meant primarily for the disciples here, right? I mean, we have not walked with Jesus physically on this earth and received instruction from him during the course of a three-and-a-half-year ministry. And so he's telling them here, look, the Spirit is going to come, indwell you, and remind you of what I've already taught. You're going to bring these things back up, and you're going to reteach them to people. And so in one sense, yes, this is for the disciples here. But the rest of the New Testament, I think, presses this principle of the Spirit's instruction further and says that now the Spirit indwells and teaches the rest of Christ's disciples, including you and I, as well. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, describing the work of the Spirit in those who follow Christ. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, or the person without Christ, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. How? Through the Spirit. So, let me explain a couple things here. This verse is not saying that someone without the Spirit can never understand anything accurately. It is not saying that those of us who have the Spirit are all smarter than everyone who doesn't have the Spirit. Okay? That's not what this verse, this section is getting at. What he is saying here is he saying that the Spirit gives us the true perspective of the world, of others, and of ourselves, and of God. We can now see everything accurately because of the Spirit. It means that the Spirit opens our eyes to God as Creator, to Jesus as Savior, and to who we are as sinners made in the image of God and needing redemption. That's the Spirit's work in us. I'm going to give you another quote here. Very helpful to me. In context, talking about 1 Corinthians 2, 
He is helping the Corinthian believers recognize that rational, scientific, and philosophical thought reaches its proper place only when it is properly ordered spiritually and theologically. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, such knowledge is ultimately inferior, not because it gets facts or ideas wrong, but because it is limited by its frame of reference. What does that mean? It means if you, if you think about science, you can learn true things about the world by studying science, by understanding the scientific method, by going through that process. If you're an unbeliever, thank goodness you can learn true things about medicine and about how to make cars and about computers and a whole bunch of other things. And it's a wonderful gift of grace that you can do that without the Spirit. But here's what he's saying when he talks about the frame of reference. It's like when you have the Spirit now... Everything gets much bigger. Now you see the reality of God as creator. Now you understand that there's a spiritual realm where the spirit works and instructs. Everything gets bigger and even more accurate because of the spirit. In our modern context, this means that if one does not accept the possibility of a spiritual reality, then anything pertaining to the spiritual world will appear nonsensical to that person's point of view. Those things discovered about the physical universe are not understood in terms of the larger reality and final ordering of things. If you don't have the Spirit working in you, you don't understand the end of all things. In eternity, on the new earth, with God dwelling with man, free from sin and free from the curse. You can never see the relationship between whatever's in front of you and that ultimate reality. And that's what the Spirit brings as he teaches and instructs us and brings us back to the work of Christ. Jesus is the truth. And the door to reality as it is, is opened for us by the work of the Spirit. What an amazing gift that God has given. And when you see things as they truly are through the work of the Spirit, it enables your obedience to Christ. Now there's a point to obeying him out of love for him. That's the work that the Spirit does. Last way that Jesus enables the obedience of his disciples is this, the powerful peace of Christ. There is a steadiness that he brings to us because of who he is, because of the work of the Spirit. So he leaves the Spirit to comfort, help, and teach there's new resurrection life through his own resurrection. Now you walk with new desires enabled by the Spirit. And Jesus leaves us the hope of messianic peace through his victory. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If there's one quality that the Old Testament consistently describes as being true of the Messianic kingdom, it's this quality of shalom or of peace. What does that mean? It's going to be how we want things to be. Justice is always served. Righteousness rules over the day. Love 
flows out between people as we consider others as more important than ourselves. Everything is set right. We're free from the curse of sin. Evil is vanquished and all of life will be properly ordered under the Messiah. That's what the Old Testament expects about the Messianic kingdom. Christmas is coming up soon. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Shalom. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And this is not something that the world can deliver. This is exactly what he says in verse 27. Not as the world gives do I give to you. No matter what happens on Tuesday, it's not going to end up in shalom. And I think you know that. But it's just a good reminder, right? Vote according to biblical principles and get out there and vote and serve the Lord by doing that if you are able to do that. But it's not going to deliver shalom and messianic peace. We're not going to see the full messianic reign in the world in our lifetime. But here's what Jesus is talking about here, right? Followers of Christ can anticipate that day through the instruction of the Spirit. We know it's coming. We know it's a reality. And we know that He has promised us this peace. And so what He's saying here is you can reach forward and anticipate that time in hope, and then you can bring that reality back to yourself today and live in light of that in the present. And that gives you a sense of steadiness and of joy and of hope in the midst of the tumultuous nature of the world. Reach forward and bring it back into your life today. That's exactly what Jesus is describing in verse 27. Let not your hearts be troubled. Look, he's going to make everything right. It's going to be fixed. It'll be rough for a while while we're here, but man, everything's going to be set right. So don't let your heart be troubled and overcome with what's going on in the world. That brings peace and calm and confidence. And how does this peace come to us? Two ways. Let me hit these quickly. First, we experience the peace of Christ, the fact that he's going to start his rule and reign now and we'll see it culminated in the future. We experience that because of his death and departure to the Father. Look at 28 and 29. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Now Jesus here is describing his departure to the Father and his return to the Father's glory. Okay, He's not saying when he says the Father is greater than I. He is not saying that he is less than God, that he as the second person of the Trinity is somehow subordinate to the Father, never has been, even in eternity past. He's not saying that he somehow lags behind the Father. That's not what he's getting at here. What he's describing is his state in his incarnation. He's describing himself humbled, as we see in Philippians 2. And what he's describing is his return, as you'll see in John 17, 
to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. That's what he's talking about, returning to the Father who's greater than he is in his incarnate state. And it's that return to the glory, to his position as Lord and his rule and reign that ultimately brings about his messianic kingdom and the hope and the peace that we have. The second way that this happens is his peace flows to us because of the victory that he has over the world and over Satan. Look at 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. He's conquered the world and he's conquered through his death and resurrection the ruler of this world. How? By fulfilling the mission that God has for him in suffering and death. And it's his fulfillment of that mission that brings about messianic peace. And that's how we have confidence and our hearts are not troubled in the present. So, All of these ways that Jesus enables obedience here. He provides significant help to his disciples to live in obedience and faithfulness to him. Now, maybe you're struggling with this word obedience because oftentimes we hear that word obedience and we think of, maybe you think this way, strict rules and an authority that is never pleased. Maybe that has been your experience at some point in your life, or maybe that's just how you view rules in general. You sort of buck against them and think that they're always negative to some extent. But that is not the case with Jesus. He calls for our obedience to him out of love for us. Why? Because he knows this is what's best for us. He's not just a strict authoritarian who takes great delight in keeping us down by giving us all these rules that he knows we can't obey. He gives us these rules, these commands, this way of life to live, and says, if you love me, you'll keep these things. And then he enables us through the spirit, through the promise of new life, through the hope of his messianic reign. He enables us to obey these things because this is how we were designed to live. This is what's best and what's good for us to live under his lordship properly related to him as the king, as the creator God. The apostle John who wrote this, who recorded these words, apparently did not think of Christ's commands as difficult and as strict and as hard. Listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 5. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome because of this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Trust in him, that his commandments are not burdensome and that they're good for us. And the proper way to live out of love for him overcomes the world. And he calls for our obedience to these commands because he died to free us from sin. And then he gives us the freedom 
and the power and the enabling strength to live as we were designed to live under his lordship and for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for the direction that you give us in your word. We're so thankful for this passage that lays out the responsibility that we have to walk according to your revealed word. We're also thankful that our love for you, given to us by your grace, enables us to obey these these commands. And Lord, we're so thankful for the the aid that you have given, for the Spirit's work inside of us, for the, the way that love for you and your love for us is shed abroad in our hearts, for the hope of messianic peace one day, and how that inspires us now and motivates us to walk in goodness and graciousness in our lives today. We're so thankful for the death of Christ and his victory over sin and the grave that gives us resurrection life and enables us to walk in obedience. And so I just pray for everyone here that we would appropriate these truths for our lives this week. This is reality. We have these gifts if we're in Christ. And so I pray that we would meditate on these truths as the way things really are, and then that would overflow into love for you and obedience to your commands. We thank you for our time together this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.